Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, November 27, 2018, is the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law. In this talk, Professors Noah Feldman and Samuel Izakaroff, along with New Yorker staff writer Jeffrey Tubin, discuss the life and legacy of America's fourth president, James Madison. Okay, well, hello, everyone. Sam. All presidents are important. But why should we care about James Madison in particular? Um, this is a fine book. Yes. Should I, uh, <laughs> I thought he was going to write about Hamilton. I uh, know. Uh, uh, We've got to get the musical references yeah, out of the but, way. Uh, we got to so, do that you know, right away. He was not and, the son of a whore and a Scotsman. Or right. And uh, it's, it's also, this is very much like a production of Hamlet without the prince. That we're, <laughs> and we can harass him. But, okay, now... Um, there is uh, a great moment that we talk about as the American experiment. It had never been done before. You have a self-governing polity. You have people voting. You have no hereditary king. You, have, you don't have enshrined religion. You don't have any other authority but the people themselves. And the people are prone to doing crazy things. They get driven by their passions. That was Madison's famous line in Federalist 10. They get, uh, they're seduced by demagogues. They don't understand their own incentives. And so we go back and we look at this and we say, well, it seems to have worked pretty well for the last couple of hundred years. We've had some bad moments. We had a civil war. We had to deal with slavery. We had many things. But it worked pretty well. And the astonishing thing is to try to put yourself back in the mindset of you're sitting there in Virginia somewhere trying to design this system. What do you, re- what do you rely on? Where does it go? And there is in Madison, just simply because of the brilliance, as Noah demonstrates, but also because he wrote so damn much, there's a chronicle of American political thought. There's a moment of ferment in where everything is up for grabs that really is unlike any other period in history that you can think of. Maybe the French Revolution had that intensity, but it didn't have the kind of intellectual self-reflection that the American framers brought to it, and Madison was the chronicler of it. I've had occasion to ask Supreme Court justices a fairly cliched question that they get asked fairly often, and across this political spectrum, they, they, ask, they answer the question the same way, which is, which is the most important part of the Constitution? And what they almost all say is the structure, the structure of government that they set up. Um, why was that so important, and you know, why was it set up the way it was? I mean, obviously, a great deal of the book is about that, but, but, but why is the structure more important than the First Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment or the Article One? The interesting thing is that if you had asked Madison or any of the framers the same question, they would have given the same answer. 
they all thought the, the people who hated the Constitution would have answered differently. It's going to be another autocracy. It's going to be abusive. There's no protection of rights. The Bill of Rights was added as a political expedient because they were afraid that the Constitution would not be approved, and so they had to commit to putting that in very quickly. But the main answer they would have given is, if this is going to work, it's going to be like a machine. And the image that was often used was, it was going to work like a clock, and the pieces were going to be set off against each other, the states against the federal government, the Congress against the president, this notion that another great line from Madison about ambition counteracting against ambition, that there was going to be a check on governmental authority, a way to filter uh, wisdom from the rulers down to uh, the population. They were going to be accountable, but not too accountable. It was a tre tremendous experiment that didn't quite work. And, and that refer refers to uh, one of the insights of Noah's, sorry, uh, Noah's book that I had not been familiar with, is that one of his great goals uh, Madison's great goals in writing the Constitution was to get rid of, to create a structure that would not encourage or even allow faction or political parties. He thought that the structure would get rid of political parties. Why was that so wrong, and, and what happened? The one greatest weakness, in my opinion, of the initial constitutional structure and of Madison's whole design was that he had no room for democratic politics. He didn't know what politics would turn out to look like. Part of that is perfectly understandable. People didn't vote like we do today. The secret ballot didn't come in till the late 19th century. Uh, you went to the town square, you raised your hand in front of everybody, including the people who were the most important in the town. You were supposed to do what they said when you voted. And so Madison had this idea that the entire structure would remove things from partisan debate. He talked about the size of the republic being large so that people couldn't organize within it and promote narrow interests. And he associated, and the entire founding generation associated any kind of political organization with the basest impulses of the population. That's where the passion would come in. That's where the envy would come in. That's where they would try to steal your property. Um, and these were deeply, deeply elitist thinkers. These were, with the exception of Hamilton, these were all landowners. They were all, most of them were slaveholders. And so they had this idea that politics meant succumbing to mass passion. And they thought that you could operate the entire system by the checks and balances between the judiciary, the least important, the Congress, and the executive. And somehow it would all be held in check in equilibrium. And they discovered almost immediately, and this is one of the fascinating parts of the history, and this is the part that Noah tells so beautifully in the biography, in, in talking about Madison himself, they discovered almost immediately that the people weren't up to the job. They were just not good enough to govern themselves. And so the way you got them to govern themselves was you had to get out there and tell them what to do in order that they could govern themselves. Now, obviously, there's an elite conception there also, but starting in 1792, when there was some jockeying for the vice presidency... Let me just stop you there for one second. The, so, so 
in the three lives of James Madison that Noah talks about are it, genius is the creation of, of the Constitution, but partisan is his recognition that he was wrong, that, that there would be no political parties. And just to pick up the story in 1792, as you say, that's when the partisan part of James Madison starts. It actually starts immediately. That's the, that's the great thing. We talk about the Federalist Papers. We have this idea of the Federalist Papers now. Like, it's somewhere like the Ten Commandments. So maybe a little wordier, maybe there's more of them, but they must have come down from somewhere, you know, and they're, they're revered. They weren't published for decades. There was no sense that... They well, they, would, they were published in newspapers at the initially, time. Initially, yeah. but they were never but they, republished. Yeah. They were never co- collected and republished until decades later. They never were part of the organizing discussion of how we actually uh, run a republic. And what Madison discovered was that first he had to proselytize on behalf of the Constitution, which he did through the Federalist Papers with John Jay and, and Alexander Hamilton. And then he had to go out and actually make this thing work. And starting in 1792, and really in the first contested election that we had, 1796, when Jefferson and Adams first ran against each other, in 1796 you already had these proto parties being organized. These guys would get on their horses and ride up and down the eastern seaboard trying to get the state legislature to back the Federalists or the Anti-Federalists. Keep in mind that politics at that time, nobody got to vote for president and until 1800, so that it was done through the state legislatures. And they then had to organize themselves as political parties, and they had to start dispensing political favors, backing one, backing the other. You saw the play Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, okay, so so you you remember that part of it. I'm very, very familiar. (laughs) Um, Before we get into that, let's just go back a little bit into the structure. And, you know, something that is very topical is the structure of the Senate. Um, where you have big states and small states, regardless of their population, uh, each get two senators. Uh, the, the difference in, in, in population was far less than it is today. Today, Wyoming has two senators with 500,000 people. California has two senators with 40 million people. Um, how, why, why, why was the Senate set up that way? Well, at the time, as you said, the disparity in population was only six to one. So we didn't have something like... 80 to one, right. 80 to one, basically, today. Um, It was set up because you had to have some way of guaranteeing to the South that their slave power would never be challenged. I mean, that, there's no other way of understanding the compromise that, that resulted. First it was the Connecticut Compromise, and then it was revised in the Constitutional Convention. But the idea was basically that if you allowed too much popular power, and the House was always deemed to be the popular organ, it would be elected by representation based on population right from the beginning, If you allowed the uh, House to have all this power, then what would stop it from trying to assume more and more power and ultimately responding to the areas that were the more populous parts of the country, which was the growing and industrializing North? And so what what you got as the compromise was two parts. One was 
the counting of persons, and that's the three-fifths compromise that allowed slaves to be counted as three-fifths of a, of, a, uh, of a white person so that it would inflate the numbers of the, uh, of the southern states. I, you know, I, I think it's worth pausing to recognize that the, the three-fifths compromise was to give the slave states more power. Right, I mean, it is so that the, the North didn't want them counted as as full persons because that would give them more members of the House of Representatives, but the the the, the South didn't want them counted as zero because they wanted the members of the right. House of Representatives. So so that's where the three fifths number comes. And from. it has huge repercussions in American history. So when Jefferson wins as the progressive figure in, eight, in 1800, he actually gets most of his votes from the South. And the reason he carried the presidency was because the Electoral College inflated the numbers of the South. And the Electoral College is based on two uh, per Senate, two per state based on the number in the Senate and the number of delegates that they have in the House, the number of representatives. The South got huge inflation because of this three-fifths compromise. And the Northerners would deride Jefferson as the Negro president because he was elected on the basis of slave votes. Obviously, the slaves did not get to vote, but that's the origin of that. That's how that compromise played out. That's why all the Virginians get elected president initially, including Madison. Uh, you know, uh, if I can throw in a plug for another, another book that uh, my wife and I just read together, which is an extraordinary book, Jill Lepore. Um, it's, it's this incredibly ambitious book, a full-fledged, political and, to a certain extent, social history of the United States from 1492 to Donald Trump. I mean, no joke. It really, and and it's, it's, it's fascinating, and you learn something new on every page. But one, one theme, especially of the, the first, you know, 100 years of the Republic, is slavery affects everything. That slavery is, um, you know, economic, political, social, and, of course, the creation of the Constitution as well. Right. And so the, the ultimate compromise was that by preserving state power, you had a veto on whatever the, the federal government could do. The Articles of Confederation were based on every state having a veto. You need unanimous consent. And that collapsed because it couldn't sustain itself commercially and it couldn't sustain itself militarily. And so now you had this idea that you had to put power in the hands of the federal government but you had to give a check. And so the compromise was the Senate. And the Senate was elitist. The Senate was, was uh, elected by the... <laughs> hey, hey! Right. You left New York. I've seen you, Sam. You left New York, but you still know how to make an entrance. Huh? I, uh, <laughs> I left New York, and we're still talking. Yes. Perfect. Um, so we're just we're talking, talking about, about your book. This, we're talking about, uh, well, you know what? Let's, let's get credit where credit is due. You're, you're a smart, ambitious guy. Why James Madison? I mean, why, why, why at this stage in your career did you do a big biography of James Madison? So I should first say that when I started working on it, Trump was not even a, a hint of a possibility in my mind. So the idea that maybe now we would need a, a, an account of a, founding father who was also the president who was slow, calm, and boring was not, you know, that wasn't my motivation. Um, my motivation was, I, I'm a constitutions person. I love con the Constitution, and I love all constitutions. And it really struck me that 
despite having you know, come up through an educational system that was very focused on the Constitution, there really wasn't very much focus on the person who was the most central to creating that Constitution. And I think now I know, I didn't know when I started, but now I know it's that he himself intended to recede into the background. You know, he was different than Jefferson. He was different than Washington. He, he didn't particularly care to be remembered. He just wanted the Constitution to matter. T talk about, though, for a minute, who he was. I mean, you know, where he was from, his family, his, his you know, just how he became who he, who, who he was. So he was really a child of relative privilege. You know, the colonial America was not that rich, and his family was pretty rich. You know, his father already had 100 slaves and 5,000 acres when he was a boy. He was the oldest son, which meant he was going to inherit it. There was really no question at all when he went off to college of his getting a profession. You know, because he was the oldest son and he had the land. And so he was going to be a gentleman. He was marked from the beginning as someone whose job it was to be a gentleman. And then a gentleman had two choices in Virginia. You could either make a contribution of some kind. You could aim for greatness. Or you could just happily be on your land and you know, be a vestryman of the local church and make a contribution. And I think he wasn't sure that he was going to go for the former rather than the latter until he came back from Princeton and discovered that the revolutionary fervor that was very slowly starting to build was kind of the thing of a lifetime. And his first reaction was, I'll join the militia. And he actually did join the militia and learn to, learn to fire a rifle. Um, but that turned out not to be the path for him. And he knew that pretty quickly. And then Virginia drafted a constitution, a state constitution. And he went as the youngest person to participate in the convention. And he was great at it. And it turned out that he drafted an important provision of religious liberty. And suddenly he had a purpose. So he went from being kind of... You know, I wouldn't want to exactly compare him to the, the college graduate who comes back and sleeps in his parents' basement, but that is sort of what he was, <laughs> you know? Um, and then he found this Métier. See, they, they, too, can make goods. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We tell so, ourselves so, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one, of the, um, one of the themes of your book is the concept of friendship, which is not something I expected. Why is friendship important? Friendship turned out to be important for two reasons, first biographical and the second structural. It was really important biographically because since Madison was kind of a reticent guy and didn't like to get up in front of a crowd and was very effective politically primarily when he was doing backroom conversations, he needed vehicles for engagement in the broader political world. And he found that in these very intense individual friendships that he formed sequentially over the course of his career, some of them with people who everyone knows about, like Hamilton and Jefferson, and some of them with people who were you know, less fundamental to uh, the history of the United States, but were still important at the time, like Edmund Randolph or uh, Light Horse Harry Lee. And so biographically, it turned out this is how he lived a lot of his life as a human, intense letter writing and communication with close friends, usually one at a time. And that's really how he lived. And then it turned out to matter at the bigger level because it turned out that Madison's theory of what the Constitution was, of what a republic was, depended on some very old kind of Greco-Roman idea of friendship, friendship among the citizens, understood not as emotional friendship, but as a correspondence of interests with mutual respect. 
So that sounds dated, I know. No, but we, well, we but, were just talking. We, yeah. we were just talking about uh, the centrality. Jeff made a point that when he talks to Supreme Court justices and they say what's important here, the answer is always the structure. And we started to talk before you got here about the way in which Madison translated these. Uh, old concepts into these new structural forms of a self-governing polity, which didn't really have an antecedent. So maybe you could talk about that. About the structure side of yeah, things. The, yeah. The, yeah. I mean, so Madison had an initial sort of inheritance on structure, which was this idea of concord among the citizens of the Republic who all were committed to the public good. And how did you know you would pursue the public good? Well, they were a little ambivalent about that because their instinct was, if you were a gentleman, of course you'd pursue the public good. But they also were observing the world around them and getting the lessons of the Scottish Enlightenment, of Hume and of Smith. And they were realizing that self-interest, especially economic self-interest, really mattered. And so that led Madison to try to think up, as exactly as you say, Sam, a structural solution to manage the problem of people disagreeing on the basis of their interests. And that basic problem was he called the problem of faction, um, which could also be called political party, but basically meant people doing things because they had a mutual interest in doing so that was different than the national or the collective interest. And his basic solution was the expansion of the polity to try to solve that. And he was wrong. Yeah. He, he was, I mean, he... he dead uh, wrong. Dead yeah. wrong. I mean, that, that, that wasn't... That the, the, the structure he set up did not prevent faction, but in fact encouraged it. And, and as I was saying before you got here, part two of the three parts is his birth as a political partisan for his side. Yeah, there's, there was a moment that kind of astonished me where you sort of almost felt like you were in the room. Madison was giving a speech in the Constitutional Convention explaining that if you expanded the polity, there'd be no more factions and no political parties. And Hamilton was writing in his notes at the same time, and you have Hamilton's notes, saying... I don't think that's true. I think, <laughs> what, literally, once you've got everybody in one room in Congress, they can form factions that way. But what you and that was true. And so, sorry, just, just the punchline is that then Hamilton got this immediately, and the minute he was in government, he created his own political party because he was imitating Parliament in, in Britain, which had political parties already at that point. It wasn't that they didn't know what they were. They just thought they had... Madison just naively thought he had defeated them. And then Madison has to form a political party to fight it off. Right. That's one of the things that you, that's really novel in your book, I think, from the other Madison biographies I've read, which is you push that date back earlier in time than I've seen done before. You have him already thinking this way at the time they're writing the Federalist Papers, at the time they're proselytizing, they're counting the votes in the state conventions, and you see the, the political organization already taking shape then. So it, you have it... You don't have these three divides. You have this coming in right from, almost right right from the get-go. I think that's true because when you go deeply into the letters, you see them forming political parties. And the first political party is federalists who want to ratify the Constitution against anti-federalists who don't want to. Then that party structure gets replaced by the party structure of basically New York-based, finance-oriented internationalists. I don't know if there are any people like that in the room. Um, <laughs> and uh, people who are focused on, on kind of an America-first, narrower, more agricultural uh, picture of what the country should be like, who, among other things, don't invest in uh, paper in, in, in financial instruments. So, you know, they, the first bank in the United States it creates the first major bubble in U.S. history. 
And no one in Virginia even buys the subscriptions or script, as they were called, because they sort of look down on it. There are people with money. They just don't bother. And then they smile as the price, you know, goes up and then comes down. Let, let me uh, talk about another aspect of the structure, um, the three branches of government. And again, one of the great advantages of actually reading the Constitution sometimes as a single document is you read Article One about the legislative power, and it's really long. It's like section after section. Article Two about the power of the president, it's pretty long too, but not nearly as long as Article Article One. And then you get to Article Three about the courts, and it's little. It's like very short. But thanks to the case of Marbury versus Madison, where Madison is one of the parties in the case in 1803, the third branch of government winds up with the power to strike down laws passed and approved by the other two. Is that Madison's idea, or, or how does that come about? So it wasn't Madison's idea to begin with. Um, I, I scoured everything to try to find any reference that Madison might have had to the possibility of judicial review, and there's almost nothing, almost nothing. One note in one letter, uh, only after the Constitution is ratified, saying, well, maybe this might, might work. Here's what Madison wanted to happen, though, that failed and which led to judicial review. He wanted Congress to be able to veto all state laws. That was part of his solution to the problem of faction. He knew that there were political parties in the states, and he was planning to have no political parties in Congress. Congress would be this wonderful nonpartisan body. Um, I know it is kind of funny. It actually is sort of funny. Devin um, Nunez was part of yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so his aspiration was to have Congress then have the capacity to veto any state law. And he did have one good thing to say about that, namely that unless the central power lay somewhere, either in the states or in the federal government, there would inevitably be a conflict. That was true. You know, he correctly, you know, foresaw that. So Marbury ends up functioning as... And it's very weak at first. It only gets stronger later. But it's the first step towards the process of the court actually taking unto itself the power to strike down laws. And that ultimately takes the civil war to do it, but ultimately puts the final word somewhere. Right. And Madison, would have that he would have liked, even though he didn't think it was going to be the judiciary. Right. One of the things your book does is it, it focuses on this legislative veto as more central, I think, to the Madisonian design than generally is, is accounted for. And it, it's striking that what makes this Madison's constitution at the end of the day? And that's one of the questions you kind of leave open, which is, well, he had to embrace it for the Federalist Papers. He finally came around to this idea that you had to have something to replace the Articles of Confederation, obviously. But at what point did he reconcile himself to this? He never reconciled himself to it. You know, he walked out of the Constitutional Convention where he had seven separate times tried to convince people to put this pet idea, this legislative veto back in, every time shot down. And he walked out very frustrated over this. Because he said, I mean, he knew that his big solution, the thing that was going to make him world famous, the solution to the problem of faction, the one that, as Jeff was pointing out, is wrong, that depended on Congress being nonpartisan and stopping the states from being partisan. Otherwise, there was no solution. So once he lost on that, he didn't have that centerpiece. So he writes Federalist 10 as a kind of copy of a, of a speech he had written previously at the Constitutional Convention, but without the centerpiece. 
So I, he never reconciled himself to that. But, he remained frustrated by this whole life. But one of the things that comes across in your account is also how, this, how deeply this was tied into the idea of congressional supremacy. And this is Jeff's point. Article one is Article one, right? It's not Article two. It's not the executive comes first. It's Congress comes first and has the most obvious power under the constitutional framework. So the legislative veto was not simply, oh, well, we could do it in the court. We could do it. It was Congress was going to rule the country. And I think that's another place that started to fail pretty quickly. And your account of, of Madison as president is an account of his recognition that you needed more power in the executive and that Congress wasn't playing its role. Yeah, so you and I wrote something about this in the Lincoln context a while, a while back um, about whether the, whether the Congress had the authority to limit how the president could use force. And our example, I mean, I think you came up with it, the example was um, Lincoln being hounded in the early part of the Civil War by a Congress that just wouldn't let him do what he wanted. So he would fight a battle, or his troops would fight a battle, and Congress would hold a hearing on that battle within a week, and they would call in the middle-level officers to testify about how the battle was run. And so we had the instinct that that was a bad thing. <laughs> and, you know, that therefore we thought that had some present-day consequences too. But actually, you know, that is the kind of thing Madison anticipated, and he had to deal with a version of that in the War of 1812, which is, you know, really the centerpiece of the third part of the book. And, boy, I never thought I'd have any interest in the War of 1812, but it turns out actually to be, in its own way, fascinating for what it shows about what the country was and wasn't. So, you know, as you all know, the goal of the War of 1812 was to invade Canada. But that was the whole point of the war. Uh, invade Canada, it would go, Canada would fall quickly, and then the British would concede on all the trade issues. Uh, that it, so it was sort of a, sort of a quasi-trade war. And it turned out that militia, which was all we had in the United States, we didn't have a significant standing army, were terrible at invading. And in, in one of the saddest moments um, in the book, uh, the, the uh, New York militia, 5,000 New York militia, are at the, on the river by the Niagara Falls, and they won't cross, literally. They defy the order to cross. And some of them raise their hands and say, it's unconstitutional to send us across that river because we're state militia and we're only designed for protection. So unless the New York legislature sends us across, we can't go. So there's a kind of beauty to Madison's own constitution designed to make it hard to invade countries, making it impossible for him to invade Canada. I mean, it's a disaster from a constitutional perspective, and he's hamstrung by it. So there you have you know, state actors doing this you know, at the state level. Congress is also constantly in Madison's face, and he realizes that he, under, he underdid the executive power to a, to, a significant, to a significant degree. And then maybe that begins the long, slow process of the expansion of executive power to a point where now it, you know, it just doesn't, re doesn't seem familiar to the constitutional design. We haven't yet mentioned the great subject that haunts Madison, haunts the whole subject of the Constitution, which is slavery. Yeah. Before we get into slavery and the Constitution, Talk about Madison's life and slavery. Madison was born into the arms of a slave, and a slave closed his eyes when he died. There was no moment in his life when he wasn't fully economically, socially, and otherwise sustained by slaves. I mean, that was fundamental to his existence. And remarkably, that said, Madison had 
some views towards slaves that were different than some of his contemporaries, like Jefferson. I mean, Jefferson actually believed in the racial superiority of white people. Madison didn't. And yet, he was just as committed to slavery as, as Jefferson was. And to me, the most remarkable, shocking moment uh, in the book that characterized this was a moment when Madison was leaving Philadelphia after his term of service in the Continental Congress. And he was accompanied by a slave that he owned personally. It had been a, she had been a gift from his grandmother called Billy. And he wrote a letter to his father where he said, I can't bring Billy back to Virginia because Billy's been living in Philly, which is free. And Billy has seen freedom. And he will corrupt the other slaves on the plantation. But I can't sell Billy for full value because there's no intermediate slave sales allowed anymore in Philadelphia because Pennsylvania is on the way to abolishing slavery. I could get full value for him if I would sell him off to the Caribbean. But he says, it would seem horrific to violate the basic human right of liberty that Billy possesses, which we fought the Revolutionary War for. And then he concludes, so what I've decided to do is to sell Billy into indentured servitude for six years. So he, wouldn't get, he wasn't getting his full value. I mean, just contemplate that. It's, it's an incredible moment, right? This person has human rights, his phrase. He's fought for, li- he wants liberty the same way that we wanted liberty from the crown. So I can't sell him to the Caribbean. Where, but on where, the other where, hand... Where slaves were treated in, in an utter, I mean, yes. as bad as it was in the yes. South, it, it was, was even worse in the for Caribbean. For sure. Yeah. But at the same time, he's explaining to his father why he's going to lose money on his most valuable asset. And he always has to ask his father for money because the father still owns the properties. And so he has to justify this kind of medial, medium, you know. And that, to me, captures Madison on slavery. He got the principles, but the reality, the economic interests that structured his entire life were so powerful, he just couldn't push beyond that or wouldn't push beyond that. Is that, that sort of cognitive dissonance, the, the, the seeing, seeing the problem but not doing anything about it, um, was he different from the other slave owners in, in the Constitution, or was he fairly typical of his time? No, I think that was pretty typical. I think that was really pretty typical. They did rest on one thing that we tend to forget. Namely, the Virginians believed that slavery was going to end naturally because it wasn't going to be economically efficient. And this is because the cotton gin hadn't been invented yet. So they were all tobacco owners, and in their lifetimes, their plantations' revenues declined drastically. That's why Madison ended his life, well, it was a little after he died, but Dolly ended up very much in debt. Jefferson never turned a profit on his plantation, ended his life almost in debt. It's not that they were such bad farmers, though they weren't such great farmers. They believed they were. were. But really it was that the economy was turning, the property in slavery was not as profitable as it had once been. Then came the cotton gin, and suddenly slavery was tremendously profitable via the production of cotton, And conditions for slaves in the United States, as Walter Johnson, the historian at Harvard, has shown, get drastically worse very, very quickly as slaveholders in the South begin to realize that by essentially torturing people, you can get them to pick more cotton and then make more profits. So the framers' generation believed that slavery would end. They didn't know what to do about it. And they were very interested in the American Colonization Society, the Liberia plan, um, as an alternative, which was always utopian and naive. Let, let, let me ask you uh, to bring the conversation somewhat to 
uh, contemporary issues. One of the great debates in constitutional law right now is about originalism, which is the idea that the Constitution should be interpreted as it was understood, the words as they were understood by the framers, by the ratifiers. Um, there is obviously no, more, no one more important than, and, and that philosophy is very much associated with Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas. Uh, what does your study of Madison tell you about whether originalism is a valid way of interpreting the Constitution? Because one of the things you learn reading your book is that he changed his mind about what, what it meant. They, all, they disagreed about what it meant. What, what does that mean for the project of originalism? So I'm a little biased here, um, but I observed that Madison, for the most part in his life, rejected originalism. He was not above when it would win an argument for him saying, I was to the Constitutional Convention and this is what we meant. He would say that sometimes. But on the really big ticket issues, he wasn't an originalist. So the best example is the Bank of the United States, which uh, Hamilton had pushed through Congress, despite the fact that there was no mention in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, there's a whole list of stuff that Congress can do, and there's no mention of chartering a bank. And Madison believed that that was unconstitutional, and he fought bitterly against it uh, when it first happened. 20 years passed. It was time to reauthorize the bank. Madison was president, and he realized we needed a bank. So he sent a message to Congress that said explicitly, I was sure that this was unconstitutional. I was there. I know it's not, it wasn't constitutional, but both political parties have approved it. Congress has passed it. The presidents have relied on it. It's now constitutional. Sam, well, there's, you're, you're, there's, sorry, a, oh, there's a part in your book, though, that makes a point that I really haven't seen before. And it goes into Madison's exchanges on constitutional questions when he's fully in partisan mode and then also when he becomes president. And you have a uh, you kind of use the imagery of him weaponizing the Constitution and the moment at which the Constitution becomes a rhetorical device in American politics. You're not only wrong, you're way out there. You don't belong. You're an in enemy our, of the state. You're an enemy of the state. And, and not just in the I'm alien, an sedition. enemy of the state. You're an enemy of the people. You're an enemy of the people. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Just want to make that. You just want to get that on the record. Credit. I I thought it was so obvious that it needed to be said, but uh, okay. But so you have this idea that his use of the Constitution was not that it was this revered document that somehow he had been there and had signed off on, and it was going to be invoked in the in a you know kind of a, a, a textually beautiful way. But really, it became part of American discourse to use the Constitution to be a placeholder for whatever fundamental values one, one wanted to argue about, and then to place the opponent outside the framework of the legitimate debate. And you kind of attribute that to Madison. You portray him a little bit. I don't know if you intended to, but you portray him a little bit as really the bad boy of this debate, that he was he tended to it in a way that Jefferson didn't, that, uh, that Hamilton didn't, that the other sure, people yeah. of that generation did not. I think he was. Now, partly that's because... Hamilton wanted to do stuff. And if that stuff wasn't in the Constitution, Hamilton just said, I'm going to do it anyway. But I'm not going to admit it's not in the Constitution. He said, well, the Constitution speaks about the general welfare. So that's pretty good. General welfare gets you whatever you want. So then it was left to Madison to say, that's unconstitutional. And you and the Federalists are a party designed to subvert the Constitution and replace it with a British-style monarchy. 
Now, secretly, that was Hamilton's aim. You know, he made that somewhat clear in a long speech in the Constitutional Convention, which did not make it into the musical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we already dealt with the musical. Did you already? Sorry. Yeah. So, uh, well, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no mention of the speech where he literally did say only constitutional monarchy can work in a country of this size and scope. So, but you're right. And Madison was, I mean, that is a takeaway for me of studying this. The Constitution never had a moment when it was wholly read. It was politicized and controversial and part of the way we argue with each other, with each other from the beginning. And in a sense, that gives me some solace under current conditions that bad as things are right now in terms of the partisanship and our connection to constitutional partisanship, we have been in that situation before, and there's something about the Constitution that allows itself as a framework to reemerge as a means of talking to each other, even though it is also used to say, you, you're trying to, you're trying to subvert the Constitution, which I think both parties today think about each, each other. Yeah, so, so talk a little bit about uh, the publication of the Federalist Papers, because this is such an interesting episode that the way we look at them today, particularly for people who are inclined toward originalism, is to hold these out as the truths that guided the early generation. Madison was highly ambivalent about the publication, the republication, the packaging of them, and only agreed to this much later in life. What, what, what gives there? Well, I mean, I, th I think it was complicated. On the one hand, they knew that these newspaper articles they were producing, mostly for the New York papers, were going to be reproduced. And they were actually reproduced and bound already during the constitutional debates. And once that was happening, Madison just wanted to win. So he wrote to George Washington, I'm going to get some bound copies of the Federalist paper and send them to you, you know, free of charge. And by the way, you may recognize the pen of one of the authors, because it was nominally still anonymous at that point. Actually, says of two of the authors, which means both of them. So on the one hand, he was willing to use it as a tool. On the other hand, he was more aware than anybody that the Federalist Papers were propaganda. You know, they were propaganda documents, and they did not, in his belief, function as a genuine guide to the meaning of the Constitution. Well, and, and in fact, I mean, you know, one, one of the remarkable things about Madison was that he was, in addition to the you know, author of the Constitution in many respects, he was the transcriber of the debates. They, you know, it, it is the, what we know of the debates comes from his hand. And he was very wary about releasing that at all. And in fact, only released it after, after Correct. Uh, by his directive, only after his death. Correct. So this is a fascinating topic. And um, there's a very important book I don't agree with some of the conclusions, but it's a very important book. It won the Bancroft Prize by our colleague Mary Sarah Builder at the BC Law School called Madison's Hand, which is a kind of deep down, deep dive into the physical pieces of paper on which his notes were written. Um, my own view is something sort of like this. He took the notes because he thought he was engaged in a world historical practice. And he edited the notes and if you read, the, you, know, you read his notes, it sounds like he's giving you verbatim what the speeches sounded like. He did write in shorthand. He had a kind of self-designed shorthand. But he also would go to people after they gave a speech and say to them, can I have your notes for the speech? And if so, I'll, you know, I'll copy that in. Um, and he also edited these notes later on in his life, in retirement. He had a long retirement. He lived a long life. He spent time editing the notes. So that you're not getting a verbatim account of what happened. And sometimes you can tell that by comparing it to other people's more partial notes. But for him... That was for the ages. And he didn't really want it to function in contemporary political debate. And that's why he wanted that to wait until 
long after he was gone. And, you know, I think Dolly was broke and she needed the money, so that's a big reason about why they were published at all. Um, and the other big worry is, towards the end of his life, he could see the sectional crisis building. You know, the book ends with everyone loving Madison and Madison being called the father of the Constitution, which didn't happen until the late 1820s, early 1830s. But the veneration and love of the Constitution that was emerging in that period was partly connected to the fact that the country was starting to head for collapse. And he saw that. Um, you mentioned Dolly, yes. um, which um, I, I, it, it was surprised me that she's the one who came up with the phrase, be best. Is, is that right? No, I'm just joking. Um, what, um, who was she? What, like, what, what was her uh, in, in let, me, let me point this a little more, because yeah. one of the things that comes across in your book is how unusual it was that Madison, who didn't quite hit five feet tall, I don't think, and was sickly. A little above, maybe. Yeah, but From he your was, height, everyone looks short. Yeah, but he, he was a sickly man his whole life. And all of a sudden, he, the imperial court of Washington formed around him. And there was no way that he had the magnetism of personality or anything else. And instead, it was Dolly. It was it, all her. It was who created the, well, the scenario we have today. Basically, I mean, is she responsible? Right, that's your yeah. best question. I mean, she, so she was called the presidentess. The term first lady is much later, and you know the, the Madisons were the first couple to move into the White House um, because uh, because he got it burned down. Well, it, that happened that later. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, because Jefferson uh, was a widower and for obvious reasons didn't bring Sally Hemings with him to the White House nor her children, who looked like him. Um, so, you know, consequently, there was... And there were, there were actually... There were real diplomatic troubles over the l- sort of lax way that Jefferson ran socializing in the White House. But during Jefferson's whole presidency, Madison was Secretary of State, so Dolly was the presiding diplomatic hostess. And then she moves into the White House, and, and I should say, parenthetically, just that she was so close to Jefferson that it was widely uh, brooded about in the papers, I'm sure it was fake news, that she was having an affair with Jefferson. As far as I can tell, that really was fake news. But it was in the newspapers at the time, designed to discredit all three of them, actually. supposed to make all three of them look bad. Um, so, and Jefferson couldn't defend himself in the, <laughs> by describing the truth of his personal <laughs> relationship. <right. laughs> so... Yeah. And this is, I think this is... To be fair, that was only one of his yeah, transgressions probably of the, true, the sort, yeah. yes. But in any event, um, Dolly decided that she would create a new form of political life in the capital that would correspond to a republic. So it wasn't exactly like a monarchy, but it was going to be more formalized uh, than it had been under Jefferson, where it had really been a problem. She was hugely successful at this. She was deeply loved by essentially everybody in Washington of all political parties. Washington was a small town. She also knew everybody. And she did a huge amount, maybe almost all, of the retail politicking for the whole term of the presidency and for the eight years that Madison was Secretary of State. So she really dominated life in Washington, D.C. And one proof of this is that when she was very old um, and had lost her money, or the money that Madison had left her, partly because her son was a, was a spendthrift, um, she was sort of taken in by the Washington community. She was given an assigned seat on the floor of the house, and she's the only woman who had that at the time. She was a participant in politics 
she was a, still a power broker well into her, her, her later years. So, you know, she really had an extraordinary, really an unmatched stature among first ladies. Let, let me, since we, we are coming towards the conclusion here, let, let's do what historians are not supposed to do, which is tell us about the future and tell us about what Madison means for today and going forward. So one of the weird things about Madison, which I'm a little hopeful about, is he's never really been captured by any political party. You know, I mean, there's something about him that's appealing to states' rights people because sometimes he talked the talk of states' rights and he definitely wanted small government and he was opposed to Hamilton's internationalism. At the same time, he's also the person who did the most to create a central federal government. So he was also a nationalist uh, in important ways and, you know, did invade another country, um, not very successfully, but he he tried. Um, And... So in that sense, he doesn't squarely fit into our contemporary political categories, and so nobody owns him. So instead, his name gets invoked, if it does get invoked, in a sort of generic, the framers were so great, isn't our Constitution wonderful? So, you know, the question is, what can be done with that? And my aspiration for Madison is that he stand in for what you might call the resilience of our Constitution. And that's the recognition that the Constitution was not perfect when it was designed, and I'm not only talking about slavery, although that's the most blatant example of a, of a profound flaw in the Constitution, but also the Senate. We haven't mentioned this, but the incredibly disproportionate shape of the Senate, Madison was furious about that throughout the Constitutional Convention. That's what he was most angry about on leaving the convention. He knew it was bad from day one, but he was stuck with it. And that was another problem. So, you know, our Constitution wasn't perfect when designed, and it really had troubles later not least the Civil War, which is almost the definition of constitutional failure. But it managed to, managed to persevere, I think, because of the structural things that... Sam, but you, you, are, you are a scholar, but also a litigator. I mean, you also try, you know, argue appellate cases as a lawyer. What, um, what, does, Madison mean to you, what does Madison mean to you in both, the, in both those uh, hats that you wear? It's very hard to say. I'm going to go with no on this, that it, there's, there's a kind of uh, mysticism about him, that he doesn't really stand for anything quite clear in our constitutional debates. Much of what I am concerned with, with the courts and in the litigation side, is the legacies of how we transformed our society after the Civil War, the 14th, 15th, 13th Amendments to the Constitution. I think, I, I have no idea what Madison's reaction to those would have been. I think it would have been just a such a complete inversion of the role between the states and the federal government. It would have been the declaration of rights well beyond what he objected to in the in the initial drafting of the Bill of Rights. Um, I don't know what what I it's you know I read your book and came away thinking I still don't know I still don't I don't don't quite understand. Um, how the initial gambit, and he's so brilliant in the initial gambit, and it failed, and his responses to it proved to be highly pragmatic and never principled and never revisiting the central issues in any deep sense, so that he had a moment in that period, in that early period around the constitutional framing that seems never to have reproduced. I I mostly agree with what you're saying, Sam, but I, I would say... He, he wanted it to work, and he wanted it to last, 
and he wanted it to protect liberty. I mean, those are the consistent themes that really mattered to him. Right. Freedom, that, freedom, I, is, you know, freedom but, of speech is a really, really good example. You know, when he was president, uniquely among wartime presidents, he did nothing to limit civil liberties, even when he should have. You know, in Hartford, they have, the New England states held a convention essentially to discuss secession. And he let it happen. No other president w- would have done that. It was probably foolish for him and, to do and, it. And but he was weak. He was also weak. And he, he had trouble moving militarily against the North at, that, at the time. Of, Certainly true. You know, but he so couldn't have moved militarily against he, the He could not. So, but the point that I, the way I would frame this, which is slightly different, is I agree with the pragmatism. And the pragmatism is what drives the book, what drives the narrative, and the ability to adapt to these new circumstances. But it never came back to trying to make the pragmatism fit into a vision. That part of his life seemed to be over relatively soon. I mean, there's still some of the correspondence with Jefferson, but it didn't have a a, a sequel. Maybe one pushback is, as he saw the rise of nullification and the possibility of Southern secession, that pushed him back in the direction of central power. And to be clear, Madison is someone who favored national power, but didn't want to have too much of it. When the government had too much power, he pushed for states' rights. And when it looked like the federal government was losing it, he pushed back for central power. So what he wanted was balance. And I think, you know, that's why it's so hard to update him, because the balance looks different today than it did at the time. Would it please displease him to know that in a worldly audience like this, everybody knows the First Amendment, everybody knows the Second Amendment, everybody knows the Fifth Amendment, they'd probably have a little trouble telling you what's in Article 1, 2, and 3. What's... How about well, Article 4? Article 4? I would have trouble <laughs> telling you what's in Article 4. Uh, what, what, what about the fact that the, the amendments, which he is also principally responsible for, yeah. have in many respects, if not trumped, they, they, they have um, taken on a life very much independent of, of the, the text itself. It's not what he wanted, but I don't think it would have surprised him because he discovered in his own lifetime, having proposed a constitution with no Bill of Rights, that everyone was really angry about the absence of a Bill of Rights. And in ratification, he kept on saying, we don't need a Bill of Rights. I've got nothing against it, but it's useless. It's paper, he called it a parchment barrier. It wouldn't do any good. And people kept on saying to him, yeah, yeah, but the Bill of Rights. We need a Bill of Rights. So finally, he sucked it up and wrote the Bill of Rights. You know, as one does. As one does. Right. Well. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, pragmatic, again, being a pragmatic politician. So, you know, I think he already got that if the structure worked pretty well, we wouldn't spend much time thinking about it. And we'd focus on other things, like the question of rights, where we fought it out historically. And I, I sort of think that that's worked. Maybe not by design, but that's worked pretty well. We focus on genuine debates about how rights should be titrated and what should be within our fundamental liberties and what shouldn't be. And the system, until recently, on the whole, seemed to work more or less the way it was supposed to. But at a moment when it's not so clear that it's doing that, you know, that's when people are going to have to figure out what's in the rest of the Constitution. Um, we are just about out of time. Let me just ask you a, fi- a final question, which, you know, I- I- I've never written a biography. But, you know, Joyce Carol Oates has a phrase that she uses you know, pathography, that people devote a lot of time to one subject and they start to hate the subject because, you know, um, that doesn't appear, that that you you didn't happen to you. But did you come away from your decade, essentially, with James Madison 
That was my 40s. <laughs> uh, 40s are good. Yeah. Uh, with greater respect, greater admiration, less. How, how did you? How did you? When you started the project and when you came away, did you like him more? Like him less? I think I liked him more in terms of the abstract value of balance that he really stood for. And I don't think I'd really realized that. I also realized that he was not just an abstract figure, but a politician and very involved in, in real world politics. And sort of that, that impressed me. He, he didn't come across to me ultimately as weak uh, in the way that he was, for example, when Washington was burned in the War of 1812. He wasn't a weak figure. He was actually a very strong and significant figure. But I will say this, and you know, maybe this is a, a, a flaw in me, I, I never... I had trouble generating very strong personal feelings for him one way or the other. And I think that was bad. You know, I think it would be a better book. I think it would be a better book if I either really loved him or really hated him. It was, there was something, and, you know... This you got that be, balance thing going. Yeah, yeah it's that, it's a, it's exactly. A, no, it, it, was, it was not, and it was not a great, it was not a great feeling. And, I, you know, it's interesting. Obama was the president during most of the time that I was writing this. And there, there was something in the back of my mind about someone who spends a lot of psychological and personal energy restraining himself so that the surface appears completely smooth. <laughs> and it's, it's not the current situation. It's not the current situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we had it for eight years, for better or worse. And Madison, the, the, the public figure in our lifetimes, who Madison most resembles at the level of character and personality in that sense, is Obama. You know, to pre- present that. And you, you can tell that there must be powerful drives underneath that are being managed. But darned if you can get underneath the hood to really, really suss out. I think it'll take a half a century or more for people to do that with Obama, if they ever do it at all. Please join me in thanking Sam Zakharoff and Noah Feldman. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.